Welcome to Dhamma on the Sidewalk, insights, interviews, and practical tips on the teachings of the Buddha for people of all walks of life, attuning, exploring, integrating the teachings in everyday life. Simple Dhamma for daily life. I'm Asoka, hosting Dhamma Capsule for people like you. Hello and welcome to Dhamma on the Sidewalk. Anila, or Tenzin Kunzang, is a very dynamic young woman who has recently ordained in the Galupa tradition of the Tibetan Mahayana school. And we've met in Bodhgaya at the Root Institute for Wisdom and Culture. And we connected and we synchronistically kept meeting, meeting each other at events around the Mahabodhi tree or during the, um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama audiences. I was very inspired by her in the sense that she expresses quite a strong determination and urgency, and at the same time, there is a lot of lightness in her. So I have invited her to be a guest in the podcast and hold a conversation with me. The conversation wasn't recorded in optimal conditions. We were in a cafe on the roadside, on the sidewalk, um, an absence of sidewalk, on the roadside in um, very busy uh, streets of Bodh Gaya. There's a lot of background noise, and there's only so much I can uh, uh, post-produce uh, this episode, and... Um, I thought eventually it gives a bit of the ambience and the atmosphere of how the place is. And um, it also is an opportunity to practice mindfulness and concentration and listen to her. So I wish you a good time with Anila her. So, Anila, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Very nice to, very pleased to meet you in Bodhgaya. <laughs> Thank you. Very close Thank by you. the Kalachakra ground. Yes, such very a Very auspicious. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And um, there is um, a very nice uh, lightness in your, in your demeanor. And at the same time, with conversation I had with you before, I can sense there is a very strong determination yes. <laughs> on being on this path and as well as a depth of an urgency mm-hmm. of living through the dharmas. Mm-hmm. So you ordained only a, a year ago. Uh, in May. So in May, so six, eight months, eight months ago. Yes, eight months so it's ago. very recent. Yes. And would you... Would you mind introducing yourself and telling you, telling us as well about the tradition you are okay. mm-hmm. uh, following, mm-hmm. the Gelupa tradition, yes. the Gelupa school? Okay. The floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> so, my name is Tenzin Kunsam. I was ordained by Jadorim Poche in May in Alanda Monastery in the south of France. Oh. I'm French. <laughs> mm. Maybe you could notice it with my accent. Uh, I, I was born in Colombia, 
and uh, was adopted. I was a baby and arrived in France. Really, I was a baby. I was only six months. So I was really, 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 really young. <laughs> and then, like everybody, just a normal life. I had studies, I had a job, an apartment, a car. But I was really always looking for something, always looking for answers. And uh, yes, at some point I was I was even um, a holistic therapist and I got burned out. And um, that brought a lot of sadness in you my... You got burned out burn by, out, by yeah. the holistic therapist? Yes, because, you know, I was always taking on me the suffering of the others. I was not a Buddhist at that time, but I was like already doing... I don't know, some kind of mental tongue I don't know, but it's just, it was, yes, I was always wanted to, to do my best to have the patience, but at the same time, because nobody can really heal uh, himself or herself if he's not ready or if he doesn't have the, the right tool, that was never enough. I was always learning new techniques, new methods to try to be there for the patients, but there was always something missing. And at some point, I got totally burnt out. Especially because there was a, a month, actually, when all the new patients, they arrived in my practice and they were all suffering for something that I didn't heal myself. So that was just like facing a wall. But at the same time, that was a blessing because then I needed to find another thing. I really needed to find answers. And that's when I really connected with Buddhism, met my master, and everything changed from, from that moment. So it's, um, I'm quite new with Buddhism and a new Anila, but it's really like the karma was absolutely not in line before. Uh, every time that I was trying to do something, there was something happening and it was not, not that and not that and not that. But to become an Anila, there was some kind of, the karma was finally ready to meet my teacher, become an Anila, and now everything's different and I'm really, really, and you lived gratitude. in the monastery in Alanda. You lived about a year or two before ordaining, right? Um, nine months, actually. Nine months? Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. So and then you you knew that this was your... Yes. The, was in your a, way. Yes. In, in a strange way, at the beginning of, of COVID, so I was not a Buddhist at that moment, um, I had a, a boyfriend, and uh, I left him because I really wanted to focus on that kind of spiritual quest I was in. And I, I wanted to try to be happy on my own before maybe being again in a couple or not. And then the thought arose that uh, maybe I wouldn't want to be again in a couple, just really to want to focus on the spiritual quest that I was, try to be a good therapist for my patients and everything. And then I had this thought, maybe I'm a nun in this life. And then that brought me so much peace in my heart. That, the, that thought always come back again and again and again and again, every day, constantly. And it's only when I really connected with Buddhism and went to Kopan in Kathmandu that I understood that becoming a Buddhist nun in the Tibetan tradition, that, that would bring me a lot of happiness. And at least it was already bringing me answers to my question. So that's how, in a strange way, I aspired to become a nun before meeting Buddhism. And then at some point I arrived in Kopan. I met right away my teacher, my main teacher. And uh, even the first morning in Kopan, I attended the Long Life Puja. Lama Zopan and Koche were there. All the Kopan nuns were there. All the Kopan monks were there. And uh, a monk from the Nalanda Monastery that I just met the night before, he made me sit among the nuns. 
I was still the person that met me sat in the nuns, the Western nuns, and uh, he asked them to explain me what was the puja about and everything. So I was trying to follow the puja, and at some point I just got totally overwhelmed by some kind of joy and happiness, started to cry and cry and cry, and thought I was doing that before, and I never want to leave, and I want to do that. And um, I stayed just three weeks um, on that first travel in Nepal, stayed three weeks in Kopan, attending courses, went for refuge, and Anila Karen was my first teacher. Uh, at Kopan, she said something after the refuge regarding my refuge name. And when she said that, I felt allowed to, to become a, a nun. She really said something and I felt, yes, I can do that. Um, I, I can do that. So does that mean you walked into your karma? Something yes, like that? I think so. <laughs> yes, it was really the karma finally. Ready, uh, ready to have a teacher. Ready, because in a strange way, I saw many karma with authority before, and rules and discipline. Oh, I mean, so much karma to purify before. Now I'm the happiest within the vows, happiest with my master, happiest as an anila. But before I was really not ready. And even when finally I understood that I wanted to study Buddhism, for some reason, when I watched the website of the Nalanda Monastery or the nunnery in the south of France, I felt, no, I want to start in Nepal. I'm going to go to Kathmandu and start Buddhism there. And I arrived in Kopan. The karma. Only the karma in increase. So you've been ordained by? Jadori Mpoche. Jadori, and he is... Um Based at the Kofan Monastery? No, he, um, I mean, he's um, in Mongolia. Most of the time he's in Mongolia, but he's teaching all over the world. And because um, before, um, when you were in this tradition and um, or in the FPMT, which is a foundation of protection for the Mayana tradition, um, founded by Lama Jishé and Lama Zopalim Poche, you could be ordained, for example, by His Holiness in Dharamsala. Um, some geshe over the world can do that, uh, especially during COVID, but most of the time you have to travel mm. in Asia. Mm. Um, and then I think it is Holiness who sent Jadot Impoche in the West to ordain people in Alanda Monastery, and that was really, really, really precious because a lot of people, they were waiting to be ordained in the West. That happened so after Lama Zopar Impoche, you know, went to Paris Nirvana. And so we, I was ordained with a lot of people coming from all over the world. And it was really full of joy and um, a really precious opportunity. In the Mahayana tradition yeah. and in the school you, ha you have ordained, what are the vows that you're taking and how does that make you part of a Sangha and at mm -hmm. the same time a student? So the vows, it's something that it's... Um, not something that we can expose. Um, but what I can say is that the same way you would um, give up your hair or your clothes, you know, to really uh, give your whole life to the Buddhas, or the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, um, usually you don't work. So it's, um, it depends. Some have savings, some they have sponsors, because, for example, sponsors uh, would think that you are a good student, that you are really committed to try to serve all sentient beings, and they want to support you in that way. 
And the Buddha always say that if you really are committed to your practice, meaning trying to really uh, live a meaningful life for all beings, then there will be some support and you will never have to be afraid about, you know, the food or housing. So it's, um, yes. it's part of letting go. But this way also, because you don't work anymore and everything, you can totally focus all your energy and all your time to the Dharma practice and not mixing it with worldly concern, like having to think for a job or get a salary. You just can really focus in a pure way somehow in your practice in what you're doing and um, without having some attachment to any financial uh, urgencies somehow. Right. So since uh, for the past year or so now, mm -hmm. the past nine months, you've been in Odain. Mm -hmm. You've lived in uh, Copan, be between um, Copan and Bodgaya. Uh, yes, in FPMT centers. And FPM, in FPM, uh, FPMT centers. Mm -hmm. And you're dedicating your life. You have entered this pathway. You're studying mm -hmm. the Dharma, yes. but also you have a strong determination of studying Tibetan language. Yes. 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 And that takes you, if I understand correctly, it takes you on the path of becoming a geshe, geshe ma. We'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see about that. But is, is that, is, is that the path where it's going? Um, to, to be able to do the geshe ma program, <laughs> yes, you first need to study Tibetan. Mm -hmm. And then after you can study really the Dharma in Tibetan. You can do that, for example, the Kopan nunnery or another nunnery in Nepal or India or in the IBD in Dharamsala. And so it's uh, between 20 to 25 years of study to become um, a geshe ma or a geshe when you're a monk. And sometimes you can do it in a shorter way if you're, um, for some reason, you have a lot of imprints and very good karma, you can go quicker. For now, the idea for me is really to study Tibetan, is really the priority, and then to offer my services as a translator. Because I already have three uh, European languages, uh, English, Spanish, and French. And there are a lot of really, really good practitioners now in Europe. And the only way for them to access the Dharma, to access the teaching of those amazing Tibetan masters, they need translators. So for now, it would be the first priority would be to do that. Also because to finance the studies in Tibetan, there would be centers who would sponsor me. So we, I would be doing the training as a translator in the centers. And regarding the Geshema program, we'll see about that after that. So it's first, you know, step by step. And also there is this idea of really relying on, on finding the way to serve as many beings as possible independently of what I would maybe like to do for myself somehow. It's just that I chose this path to be able to help as many beings as possible. And for now, it seems to be really as a translator, like translating simultaneously the teaching, but yeah. also translating maybe texts or books to enable the access of the Dharma to many people. So first is this idea. And then once I would have learned Tibetan, we'll see after that. What were your days made of since for the past nine months? Mm -hmm. You coming to Bodh Gaya, you going to meditate, mm -hmm. you started to study. Mm -hmm. uh, I still keep sense, even yeah. in the conversation, I sense this urgency mm -hmm. of 
in in Pali, there's a term mm-hmm. in Pali that is um, said uh, samvega. You experience mm-hmm. samvega, which means you're experiencing the urgency of being in the Dhamma. What is your day made of? What do you do the whole day? You're mm-hmm. meditating. You did you receive some specific meditation to meditate on? Are you on a specific? Is, is there a specific path that you need to follow to um, start studying the Dhamma? Yes, it's. Um, because for me, everything we start first with uh, Tibetan studies, and that uh, study will start at the end of June. Then uh, I have this amazing period of time where I can attend only teaching, do pilgrimages and retreats, therefore spending my time studying, meditating and practicing, which is the best <laughs> gift ever. So um, basically, I'm waking up in the morning, and first thing, uh, I'm thinking about uh, a verse of Chantideva, for as long as space remain, for as long as sentient beings remain, until then, may we too, I like to say it with may we too remain, until the end of samsara. And so it's the first thought that I have, and then I'm starting to do like the morning practices, mm-hmm. addressing the speech, addressing the mala, some kind of, you know, introductory practices, then I go to breakfast. Then I'm doing a session of meditation. In the afternoon, I like to study and then contemplate on what I'm studying. Then in the evening, a lot of uh, practice. It's like practicing actually all day and studying all day. Yeah. And doing pilgrimages, which enables me to do that in very sacred places, like going under the Bodhi tree and studying there and practicing there, which has some kind of special energy and blessing on top of what I could do in, in my room. So it's really a very rich period of time. So it's a it's a path of dedicating your life mm-hmm. to make yourself a better person, to serve mm-hmm. others better. Mm-hmm. Do you study by yourself? Does that does that involve reporting or be having the support of a teacher, or is all on your own initiative? Um, if I wouldn't have wanted to learn Tibetan, I think I would have done the basic program and master program. Because uh, to be able to study at the Copanonori, for example, I would have had to um, learn Tibetan. So the advantage with the basic and the master program in Alanda, for example, or another FPMT centers, is that you can study the major texts um, of uh, you know tradition. It's five years and seven years, and that you get a level uh, of studies which is really, really, really good, strong, and it's. Um, it's really a really intense level of studies, but then you can really share the Dharma with some knowledge, you know, and really, uh, yes, it's really a rich program. But because first I need to learn Tibetan, um, I'm doing a, a bit of my own studies uh, in between. So I'm trying to attend teaching, like Geshe Tendinzopa's teaching earlier this month. Uh, and also he is one of my main teachers and um, he advised me to read some specific books and to reflect on it, to study those books, reflect and contemplate um, on those books. Same for practices and meditation. So that's basically the, the whole program of this retreat in Bodh Gaya under the Bodhi Tree. It's um, based on what he advised me to do. Mm-hmm. And it's really based on where I am now and what is more... Um, beneficial for my mind and suitable for my mind now. Um, so it's really, I'm really grateful because on my own, um, maybe I would have done all the meditation and it would have been meaningful, but um, it's good to have a teacher who really understands you and knows where you are, where you want to go, how your mind functions, because then it can really give you advice that are really done for you and only yourself, for your own goods, 
and therefore you can really uh, progress, you know, the, in the most um, easiest way. In the most easiest way or appropriate way. So it's really advice that are really for you and not for somebody mm -hmm. else. Um, it's really helpful in that sense. And what about your your belonging to a sangha? Do you belong to a sangha then? Um, or it's, uh, what do you mean, like a community? A community. Oh, yes. uh, no, not now, because it's, um, um, the studies that I'm going to do is first Sarah College, uh, and it's, um, it's a college, so for les personnes, a monastique, it's for anybody. Which is where? Uh, Dharamsala. Dharamsala, yes. okay. And, um, so that's why it's not a, com a monastic community. And after that, I will offer my service to communities as a translator, And at this moment, I would really belong to a community. But because first, it starts with a Tibetan. Uh, if I would have already belonged to a community, maybe uh, maybe there would have been some service to needed to be done in this community. Mm -hmm. And therefore, maybe I wouldn't have been able to study Tibetan. So that's why my choice was first to study Tibetan and from there to see whatever I would be able to offer service. Because everything starts for me, by studying um, the Tibetan, then for now I don't belong to a community, yeah. but I belong to the FKM team. So it's it's like already being some kind of community, it's just that I'm not attached to a, a specific center, meditation, for example, or a monastery or a nunnery. It's just that I'm FPMT, this is my home, and so that's why I'm living there because there was a teaching, then I would go somewhere else because there was a teaching and everything, but I didn't commit to a nunnery, for example, a monastery, as long as I have not finished my Tibetan studies. And your Tibetan studies then will last for about five years, five uh, to seven years? It will be three years, three uh, years really studying, and then two years of training. So it's, uh, oh, sometimes it can be three years of training, but it's, yes, at least it's three years in Dharamsala, in this college, and, um, yeah. <laughs> and... How, where is Anila, the Anila that, who was, um, the Anila who was crying of joy mm -hmm. as a lay person <laughs> in a puja, yes. and the Anila of today and looking forward, where is she? Well, based on impermanence, <laughs> no, the, I think the... Um, What I can share is how, yes, based on the ordination ceremony, the closer we were approaching the ordination ceremony and the more painful it was to be still in lay clothes. It was really, I was experiencing as if I had one leg less or one arm less. It's actually something like really heavy in the heart. And on the, the day of the ordination ceremony, I went to breakfast in my robes because no way I would have wear again my volunteer lay clothes. I just, I was, I, I, I explain something about the karma. It's really, it felt so natural and that brought me so much peace in my mind. And of course I have a lot of things still to work on. <laughs> my mind is the best for that. I mean, like we are all, you know, still producing some surfing thoughts and everything, but what I, really like in being ordained is that because of the vows, my mind is only focusing is what, on what is meaningful, in how to change my mind to be, be being in the service of the others, really helping the others and 
being able one day to generate bodhicitta, which is this great compassion for any form of being, constantly, spontaneously, naturally, and everything. And so, living in the vows, because of the vows, I'm not wasting any more energy in some things that would drain my energy and make my mind agitating. And on top of that, I have all my time to meditate, to study. When I discovered the um, Buddhism in this life, it felt like finding a roadmap of my mind because before I was always feeling like not really fitting in in any circumstances. Trying to fit in, trying to fit in and to accommodate yourself. Yes, yes. But it was never, I was always feeling uncomfortable or too much or not enough. Never at the right place. Even if I have friends and family and everything, it's not that, really not that. But it's just that the karma was to become an anila, but not the rest. So when I started to read about Buddhism, and I started to read about the Dharma and keep teaching about it, it felt, oh, that's why my mind is thinking this way, or that sounds so familiar. So that's why being able to have this whole life dedicated to the Dharma brings me the, this joy and some kind of fulfillment, even if, again, my mind still needs to work on a lot of things. <laughs> but at the end, I know I came home. It was like coming back home when I arrived in Copeland. And from there, after that, when I went back to France, I went to Nalanda to offer my services as a volunteer and stayed there. Um, and I, I got ordained there and everything. And, um, and I would be really happy to go to Dharamsala and study Tibetan, even if I'm not in the community, but because it's true. After that, being able to offer my services as a translator and be able to study the Dharma in Tibetan. So to answer this question, it's bringing me so much, it's bringing me all the conducive conditions to be able to, to study and to one day, maybe not in this life, but one day, one day that will happen, I will be able to become a Buddha. Because in this life, I became an Anila and I was able to only focusing on the Dharma, the Karma. <laughs> it's also because of that, because before, I was always like feeling like a stranger, like an alien. But within this tradition, within the robes and studying the Dharma and with my teacher and all the brothers and sisters, and not only all the brothers and sisters, but the Sangha in the sense of all the followers, I felt really like at home and um, in the right condition to go as fast and as far as I can to finally reach the moment when I would be able to help the others, what I was not able to do as a holistic therapist, because you can't heal the others. And I needed to be burned out, I needed to go that far to understand that there was probably somewhere else something that would enable me to, to reach this moment when I would be able to help the others. And that was a Dharma. And, and I'm saying that for me. I'm not saying that is for everybody. <laughs> but when I think about what I was um, a young child, even very young, I just wanted to hug everybody and take their pain away, like in Tonglen. Even as a child, I wanted that. And when I was a rebellious teenager, I was always answering people like, whatever, when I would be old, I would go to there, meaning the Himalayas, and I would study there in an ashram because that was the only world that I knew back then. Because I had this thought of becoming whole there and studying some kind of religious philosophy. 
and then being with children and teach those children. So this is karma, this is imprints. And to answer the question about the karma, so I arrived in this family, um, not far from Nalanda, Dorje Palmo Nunnery and Pajwa Yogi Institute. And I know that there was something there, but I've never been there. Because the so karma was. How old were you at that time? Uh, when I, the first time I, that was after Kopan, so it was in 2022. Meaning the rest of my life, I lived, the rest of my life, except when I was in Bogota or Luz, I lived really not far from those three centers, but the karma was not ready. I knew about them briefly, but apart from that, I didn't know nothing about Buddhism. But then, in a strange way, one day, I started to have intense dreams, very specific dreams. And the first dream was about the Mankalash, Dilgokyan Serimpoche, some kind of Guru Yoga. But because I didn't know nothing about Buddhism, I didn't understand the dream. And that took me so many months, almost two, one year and a half, to understand that it was all connected to Buddhism. And when I finally understood that, I saw that maybe it could be nice if I could investigate a the question. And that's when the thought came to go to Kopan. So this is karma. This is imprints. I don't know more about those dreams, except that Steba said they led me to Kopan to meet my teacher, to go straight away to the FPMT, and, um, and a few months after becoming an, an Anila because of the karma, because of imprints. The karma was finally ready. May I ask you how it went with your family? Oh, it was complicated. Was more complicated? <laughs> yes, because it's um, it's like becoming an Anila. It's as if it it represents all their major fears, because it's um, because you you live a life of celibacy, because you don't have incomes, so you don't have you know like um, retirement pension, you don't have a house, you don't own anything. And you're always, always, always trying to prefer the others before yourself. I mean, so the question about cherishing others, including yourself, it's, it's not you, you have to work on the ego. You know, outside the ego is something that is valued and it's good to be strong and have confidence and everything. It's like the opposite, what we are practicing. And because we truly believe that this is what brings us happiness and it is. So for my parents, it was, and on top of that, um, my father is anti-establishment, so any kind of religion. <laughs> Very so French like, in that time. <laughs> yes. And, um, and also because it was so, so quick for them. You can understand that because it's, um, I mean, it was quick for me, but quick in a good way for me because finally the camera was ready and finally my heart opened and everything made sense and everything. But for them, it was really, 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 really hard and which is beautiful is that because I became an Anila and because it is the worst fear but because it's, this is making me so happy and make my mind changing totally this is kind of healing of family somehow this is bringing new energy and everything is totally changing and also around the ordination ceremony my father got sick and um, the day I was ordained, he entered the, the hospital. And um, maybe because of that, then there's some kind of urgency to focus on what is more important, meaning me being happy, and therefore accepting this choice of life that I did. 
So this is coming from them and from me. Whenever I went back and meet them, I'm just trying to be the best daughter that I can and um, to bring all this joy and happiness and fulfillment that the teaching is bringing to my life. Mm-hmm. Hoping that one day the karma will be ready, but at the same time accepting that they have their own life and to different different paths. Before I was ordained, a friend told me, was, um, oh, it's actually the monk that I met in Copan, the monk he said, you know, among the Western and he said that the best thing that I could do for my parents yeah. was to be ordained, to generate merits, share the merit, the blessings and everything, and, and they have like my amazing teachers who are praying for them, and that is kind of powerful. So it's, um, it's like a healing pass for me, but also a healing pass as a family, and this is really the beauty of Dharma, that it enables to create healing in all situations and um, and also which is like the other day um, I think it's a Kongulim Poche who asked us uh, or we was asked what was the most um, important teaching that he received uh, in his life and um, and I was thinking mine is really my teacher his teaching his life and what happened to him uh, with his family too. And um, because my teacher is such a pure-hearted person and um, he enabled all these changes. And um, and I'm going to get emotional, but it's normal. <laughs> and yes, it's, um, to have somebody like that in your life, you know, who, who looks at you with such compassion because he knows everything about you, he knows really how your mind works and still find you beautiful <laughs> somehow. Those Buddhas, those Bodhisattvas, they have a human body and they interact with you because they are human. But they have a level of wisdom and compassion that would make you change totally and in a happy way. And it's just marvelous to experience that. To, yes, like his holiness, for example. Which, um... In terms of uh, the practicality for the mm-hmm. the studies, mm-hmm. this the your Dharma studies mm-hmm. as a Mahayana mm-hmm. uh, Tibetan nun, yes, of the Tibetan tradition. Mm-hmm. Which are the three main? I heard you saying at some point the three main books or the three point the three main reference books or studies that you need to have followers up. Um let's say that um you can teach or study the Dharma in different ways. Um you can do really philosophical studies like when you're doing the Geshima program or Geshe program for example and then you would need study for 20 up to 25 years um, all the major classical texts. From so we're on. talking 25 years, we're yes. talking almost way more than a generation here. Yes, we're yes, talking yes. a lot of years in yes. the life. Yes, yeah. I mean, conventionally it's a lot of years. Unconventionally it's <laughs> it's nothing. <laughs> By conventionally yes. 25 years of study to become mm. a Geshe Ma, um, mm-hmm. yes. not bad. Yes. <laughs> so Oh, so yeah, so there is a philosophical um, studies. Mm-hmm. Then there is also, um, you can approach the Buddhist, the teaching of the Buddha like a science, like a science of the mind. Mm-hmm. Then there is the Lamrim, 
and the lamrim, lamrim meaning gradual path. Mm -hmm. And the lamrim is, is this idea of um, it's a collection of teaching organized by wonderful teachers to really have the world map from now that you are an ordinary being, ordinary being up to Buddhahood. Atisha is known for the past enlightenment. He tried to really take the whole the Buddha's teaching, which are 8,400,000 of teachings, and to organize them from A to Z to become enlightened. And then Lama Tsongkhapa, two centuries after, he took the work of Atisha and he wrote this amazing Lamrim Chamo, which he divided in three volumes because it's really, 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 really dense, to try to develop all the Buddha's teachings so we could really have the roadmap to achieve Buddhahood by following gradually, gradually, gradually of the teachings. And there are three volumes because there is this idea of the first level of topics that you would study. Um, like when we talk about impermanence um, and death, and, um, which is the, the first level is for what we call the practitioner who wants to go for the future, for example, to avoid to being reborn in heavens, for example. Then there is a second level of studies that you would do, of topics that you would study, which enables you to reach nirvana, which is the individual liberation. But to achieve Buddhahood, and this is the Mayana path, to achieve Buddhahood, so the total state of omniscience, which enables you to fully help all the beings, and you, whatever things you would do, it would be only to serve all the beings, you need to practice the third level of studies, of practice of topics. So that's why this is a um, three-volume um, book, that is a one and same book. And to go to the third level of topics, let's say, you would still need to first study the first level, then the second level, then the third level. So it's really like um, a roadmap. It's a roadmap for the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, quite, uh, quite, yes. quite thick as well. Yes, yes, I hear you talking sometimes of using the word Buddhahood, mm -hmm. and sometimes I hear you using the expression Bodhicitta. Mm -hmm. Can you help so, us? Yes, yes. For those who don't know, can you <laughs> give us some hints and which which one is what? Um, so Buddha is really the level um, that Buddha reached, which is total omniscience, which means that he not only eliminates all his affliction, um, but also reach the point where somehow to be to summarize. He knows everything and because he knows everything, he can really help the other in the way that nobody else can do because he can totally read the mind of the person and knows all about his karma, including the subtle karma. And because of that, he would teach that person in the specific way that he needs to heal to be able to reach the same level. You know when we talk about um, for example uh, people who have certain um Abilities, um, even uh, holistic therapists, for example, let's say, or psychiatrists, you know, somebody who, a counselor, would try to help somebody else, he would do it with his contaminated mind, with his own affliction, there could be a lot of projection. Even if he's trying to do his best, he doesn't have the level of omniscience that the Buddha has. So that's why to really be able to help the others free themselves, you will need to reach a level of a Buddha to get this omniscient state of mind 
So this is Buddha good. Bodhicitta, it's like, it's beyond great compassion. It's a state of mind, a state of mind of enlightenment, which would do anything to support sentient beings in the same cold way and constantly, spontaneously, meaning that, you know, when, the, when we are talking about cherishing others, again, it's not about cherishing others and forgetting about yourself. You are including in the others. But it's a state of mind that we make or say or think things for the benefit of all the others. So it means that at some point you would take the responsibility also to reach that level, to achieve Buddhahood, but not for yourself to be happy and, um, but to reach that level of omniscience to be able to help the others. So everything that you would do, think or say, it would be for the others, including yourself, but for the others. It would never be, um, just for you. And, that state of mind is constant, spontaneous, whatever happens, whatever situation, even when you are dreaming. And it's just a new way of being somehow, because it's not forced, it's not contrived, and it's not, um, you come to the point when you never get angry somehow, because it's all about the others, and you, when there is no, they say when there is no remain of state of emotional um, I, my, mind, then you reach Buddhahood. It doesn't mean that you don't exist anymore, but it's just that you will never somehow put even yourself a bit, in, you know, between the others and, um, and the purpose of helping them. I have a sense that you just, you just gave us a very beautiful and simple definition of the connection between emptiness and compassion. <laughs> For, a question that that I often hear in some circle mm -hmm. that some people don't like to use the word emptiness; they prefer the word uh, vacuity. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I yeah. I know that you speak French, and I heard mm -hmm. you saying in French that you you haven't used the word emptiness in French; you've used yeah. the word vacuity. Yes. There's yes. a subtle there's a subtlety there. Mm -hmm. Would you would you give us some some hints about that? I would say that. Um, I don't know if I can answer the question, but I would say that um, there is a notion of emptinesses, of emptiness of emptinesses. There, we were talking briefly about debates, and the idea of debate is really to, um, which, what I like about debate, it's not a question about winning the debate, it's a question to really corner every topic that you would study. And questioning it yes. and and not taking it for granted and discussing that yes. topic and and because you are debating with somebody else you would really check if you really understood um, this topic and the idea is to really cut ignorance it's really to fight ignorance and they say that in a good debate somebody can even achieve enlightenment because because of the debate at some point it will understand something, realize something because of the debate. So what I like about the debate is this idea, even if I'm not practicing it yet, <laughs> but it's the idea of really how you will um, work on ignorance and therefore the ability to reach the moment of omniscience, state of mind, because you're every time working against your own affliction, projections, and beliefs, wrong views, and everything. And to answer your question, 
the debate it always starts by learning definition, and by learning the definition of something, you would then understand that that thing is not that other things. So first, you learn a lot of definition to try to understand on a conventional level uh, the thing A, the thing B, the thing C, the thing D, and because you learn what the thing is, what the thing is, what the thing is. Then at some point you will be able to understand also the emptinesses of the A, the B, the C, the D, and then for understand really emptiness, which is the emptiness of emptinesses, which means that we are trying to understand how every phenomena, including the cell, doesn't have um, in a hundred many level by the mind and everything. But then the second part is to understand that even emptinesses somehow is a void, it's a label, it's a conceptual thing, even Buddhahood. So that doesn't mean that does not exist, it's not that, but it just means that everything is labeled by the mind, is a product of a mental activity. And when you start first to read about those concepts, it transforms your your vision of reality, of course, of the way you experience things, because then you understand that everything that you are experiencing is the fruit of a label, of a mental um, mental construction and everything. But it's really helpful on first level in the way you interact with the others, and that's bringing you a lot of peace, and the way you are experiencing life also, because it, may, it, it means that you can also choose to label everything in a different way. And when you're interacting with somebody else, you can understand that the way that you are perceiving this relationship is based on your own projection and that the person has both those projections. And then from that, you get a level of peace that really helps you. To go back to your question about emptiness, vacuity, and everything, especially because it's foreign languages, it's, um, and this is really interesting that you have different words, different languages. We, as a future translator, we could say, oh, vacuity is vacuity. Then what does it mean? Does it mean that emptiness, there is um, another word in French to translate emptiness? But if we think about this question of labeling, 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 it also means that, do we know what we are talking about? Not just kidding, this is going to be young, but it's really is your robe really red? Where is yeah. the red of your robe coming <laughs> exactly. from? <laughs> but that question of languages and, you know, vacuity, what you ask about vacuity, vacuity, emptiness, it shows how we are always constantly trying to interact with each other and having relationships between each other based on labels. But at some point, this is where the suffering is creating, that we all have our own definition of one label and we are trying to interact with each other. So this is where the suffering is coming from, but also it's beautiful when you think about that, because it means that we can create anything that we want. And it also means that because we don't have a self to hold, like this notion of, um, of a, a mind that will be exactly the same from being in this life, then it means that everything is open to interact in a different way, and it also means that Buddhahood is possible because we don't have a mind that is solid, but we have a stream of state of minds, and one day we will all reach Buddhahood. So just by reflecting on that, you can understand that this is possible, you can understand 
how to interact in a more easy way with others, not getting angry because he projected something on me and I projected something to the person. Yeah, it seems it seems for the the past two weeks I've been fully immersed in and living in the communi- communal life uh, mm-hmm. at the semi monastic semi monastic monastery or yeah. uh, the root institute, and I, I hear a lot about. Talking interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. In fact, not that I didn't know about yes, it before, yes. but it comes up a lot in the discussions, in the teachings, mm-hmm. in in the conversations among mm-hmm. interconnectedness, and even how certain basic, um, I would say, services mm-hmm. at the, the Road Institute. Uh, I explain why it's because we all are interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. So once we get the point, it's very different from other traditions. Mm-hmm. Not that other traditions do not uh, give importance to the interconnectedness, it's just called differently. It might be called harmony uh, of the communal living and you're not always trying to debate, yes, Yes. to debate their own offenses and debate their own uh, wrong speech or what is, but the focus is more into organizing the communal life so that it remains harmonious. But here we are talking at another level, we're talking interconnectedness of everything, which eventually has an impact on our own karma. And once we understand that, there's there's a form of liberation there, right? To this interconnectedness. Is this the, is this the reason as to why uh, most uh, Mahayana monasteries or institute tend to have an extension um, as a clinic or as a school project, like the Wood Institute has a school, Maitreya school project, or there's a Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha uh, clinic, session uh, in um, Kathmandu from uh, established by Matthew Ricard has also a clinic. Is this interconnectedness and this um, focus on on myself and others, but others serving others always go towards school projects and uh, hospital. Is this interconnectedness that is creating this? But I'm, I'm sure that in other conditions they are doing things too. But it's true that with the Mayana, um, you won't achieve Buddhahood if you don't generate bodhicitta. Even if you realize emptiness, it's not supported by bodhicitta. You want to achieve Buddhahood. So, because we are constantly training our mind to try to get to this moment where our mind will naturally think always about the others, then there is this notion of putting this aspiration into action. And that's why there are a lot of um, facilities, a lot of um, uh, social work that we are doing. So, there is this idea of um, a Bodhisattva, you know, a Buddha to be a Bodhisattva. There is an aspiring bodhisattva, aspiring bodhisattva vows, and an acting uh, bodhisattva or bodhisattva vows. So the idea is, you have the teaching, you understand when you want to go, you know how to go there, but at some point you need to put everything into action. Radical compassion? Yes, sometimes. Some people call it radical yes. compassion. Oh, that yes. compassion is a muscle. Mm. Compassion is a muscle that it just doesn't, it won't happen by itself like this just by watching it. It's something that needs to be nourished and fed and it's like an engine. Yes, it's like an, a fleet and a, you know, um, somebody who would go to the Olympic Games. 
before being able to spontaneously do whatever he needs to do. He needs to train and train and train. It's exactly the same thing. And uh, about that, yes, the, when we're talking about the Lamri, the, there is also the teaching of Lojong, which is really connected to... And the Lojong is the mind training. So there, there is all the training that you can do to generate Bodhicitta, but also to other, other realizations. And uh, what about that? Oh, yes, the, the fourth, just to finish on that topic, the fourth way to study or to teach is the experiential way with direct instruction for a teacher, like mostly in all times, but still it's happening. So, yes, to be just, you know, to finish on this topic. Um, I don't know about the... Um, I'm sure, you know, the tradition they are doing a lot to... is to Because to read the point of Buddha Foot, you know, at first maybe you would do it as a training, but at some point that brings so much happiness that at the end it's not that you are not training anymore, but it's just, you know, when you see just a smile on the face of somebody else, it just brings so much happiness, so it's just, you know, it's, um, yeah. So it is possible to be a Buddha. It doesn't necessarily require a robe. No. Yes. So just to make it clear that it's not a privilege of a monastic no. to become a Buddha. Anyone can become a Buddha. It doesn't yes. require yes. to have a robe. Yes. It requires as a first step a, a, a commitment and a discipline to investigate the his or her own mind mm -hmm. and work towards a better man and get get uh, acquainted with the Buddha's text, mm -hmm. yes. whichever yes. they are yes. in the tradition yes. that they are. Yes. But anyone yes. can reach the state of the state of Buddha in this life. Yes. And that would mean having a karma expressed, yes. manifested. Yes, yes. And does that karma extinguish? Oh yes. <laughs> and uh, is it possible to reach a point where there is no karma anymore? Yes, when it's Buddhahood, and even before you, you would come to a point, you cleanse enough your mind so that you won't generate more karma, and you're out of samsara, but you're still not a Buddha. You still have to work more, because there is still some kind of obscuration to omniscience to really come to the point of Buddhahood. So the first level is self-liberation for nirvana, But to reach the other point, you, you need more. And um, that's what you were saying. Um, yes, anybody can reach Buddha Hood and uh, in this life, that requires a lot of work and a lot of merit and a lot of karma. And it's really a question of um, being, a, yes, of generating merits and merits and merits. And I think the more you are generating merits and the more, it's not that it gets easier, but it's just that at some point, um, I think, um, from what I could see from a teacher, they seem to be constantly happy and full of joy. So it's, at some point, I guess, at the beginning, it's like you're pushing, pushing, maybe forcing, and then you become more and more relaxed because the more uh, realization you have to get, and um, I think there's still a lot of purification, but it's just you are experiencing differently, even in terms of purification. And, uh, yeah, like that. It's possible that we'll have another conversation at some point during your training years. 
if you remain in contact. Mm -hmm. Now, for now, I'd like you to maybe give us some closing remarks, some closing thoughts. Uh, or maybe just one last thing before that um, about Lamrim Chamo by Lamaton Kappa. This is really specific to the Gelukpa school because, um, like, um, yes, when he did this amazing work, Lamaton Kappa became somehow a spiritual guide. It doesn't mean that in the other tradition they don't, um, they have their own Lamrim, it's just that for us it's Lamaton Kappa. Uh, just to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes they say in the Galupa tradition, we are really studying a lot, <laughs> which is true. But it's, um, you know, we all have a different mind. And there is the goal, which is Buddha Foot. And there is all kind of different ways to reach that point. And it's just for my mind, studies of suitable really help me change my mind. And so I was really a good fit with the Gelupa school, the FPMT, my teacher, and the Gupa Gimpoche, his holiness. But for others, they will need other way to study or teach, so it's a yeah, different so For those who don't know, there are four main schools in Tibet, in the mm -hmm. Tibetan tradition, or the Mahayana tradition. Yeah. So the one you are in is the Gelupa. Um, there is the Gelupa, the Sakya, yes. the Kagyu, mm -hmm. and the Nyingma. Yes. So um, some closing thoughts, maybe... As a woman, as a young woman, with your very clear aspiration, very strong <laughs> determination, can you give us some some closing thoughts, something that you really wish to share, and considering that maybe among the listeners there are young women who might be also looking at wanting to ordain, especially now if there is a possibility to actually also come in through study and not yes. necessarily yes. just through the monastic for being the monastic mm -hmm. and for studying the Dharma. And amongst the listeners, there might also be people who are just uh, not knowing that it is possible now for women mm -hmm. to follow a similar path yes. as a man. So would you have something to share about this? Mm -hmm. You know, because before what I was doing, it was um, there was always this idea also of healing, you know, healing the mind, trying to feel better and everything, and uh, just another way to do that. Um, I would talk about compassion because what was really the, the switch in my mind, in my heart, because for me it's the same heart mind, the same thing, was when I met my teacher. And because I thought in this life I would never feel safe. And then I was in front of this, I was so much Buddhism, not knowing really what a geisha was and everything, but it was just in front of me, this person who was so pure-hearted and so knowledgeable. And, and he spent one hour with me answering just one question. And in such a compassionate way, I like myself, and I was listening to him and I thought, this is my answer. And it all started because he was able to make me feel safe. And because of that, I started to start to generate compassion for myself. So this could be strange to use the word myself, but the, the point is just that to heal the compassion is the answer. For the others, of course, to reach Buddhahood. But when you are starting the first level, you need to find the strength 
that you face, all that you are in your mind, like your affliction, your suffering and everything, you, you know, the, the way that your mind can produce really, really narrow thoughts and everything. And it all comes first by being compassionate with yourself and accepting that it's not you. Because under, below, 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 all the, you know, the, like the, the anger, the attachment, or the jealousy, or those souls that we are producing, and we feel so guilty about that, it's like so, been so ashamed. Under that, there is our Buddha nature. It's there. It's the common point with everybody. All beings. And that, the rest, all these thoughts that we are producing, it's the fruit of lives and lives and lives and lives of wrong habituation, both because we are suffering. And when you feel that and understand that we are all that, this beautiful thing inside, it helps to face all the rest in a compassionate and patient way, especially with the help of a skillful teacher. Because they're going to look at you as if you were really the most precious thing in the world. And that brings you the strength to really work on your mind, whether with the Buddhist Buddha teaching or not. So that's why I wanted just to express that, this idea of compassion. <coughs> because whether you're a Buddhist or not, on a spiritual quest or not, we all just want to be happy. And it all starts by being compassionate with yourself. Because then you can really work on your mind because you would just do it like I'm doing my best I did my best and this is the result but because I know I can change everything then at some point I will be different so this is um, the compassion is really the beginning of everything so we wish you a beautiful path you seem to be very versed already and advanced in your study so it was very, very nice to have you. Very locally uh, set, you know, typical Indian background. <laughs> <laughs> and we wish you all the best and we hope to stay in contact with you in some